So we want to take this time now um, to open up to questions or reflections that may have arisen from today. But I would like to just, um, if you would just bear in mind that we're not nearly done with metta. So we have quite a bit more to say about that tomorrow. So um, please don't steal our thunder. I'm quite sure if that's the appropriate saying, but you get what I mean. Okay, so anyone have anything they'd like to raise from today? Yes. Uh, earlier you mentioned that uh, sentimentality was the near enemy of meta. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit. I'm not sure I understand the problems with sentimentality. Okay, just check. Did everybody hear the question? Okay, the question is, so we will, please, if we forget, remind us to repeat the questions. So the question is around sentimentality and just uh, curious about the difference between sentimentality and metta or why sentimentality might be considered like a, a near enemy of metta, I think. Okay, I'll do it first. I think it was, I made the comment <laughs> about sentimentality. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you've got to remember is that all of the near enemies look remarkably like the real thing. Yeah. However, they're a lot easier to fall into. And sentimentality and the feelings of sentimentality, and what I mean by that is, I don't know, a feeling of closeness, a feeling of care, but isn't really there. It's not really established. It's not really the friendliness and openness which is there. Sentimentality is usually hooked into something. Sentimentality is usually hooked into uh, wanting something from the other person in some way or another. And so it hasn't got that open dimension that uh, metta has. Yet, as I say, and this is one of the defining characteristics of all near enemies, it looks just so remarkably like it. Um, prima facie. One can get this feeling that you, know, you think that you're actually there. I'm actually feeling meta. I'm not. I'm just feeling gooey. <laughs> and a lot of what passes for meta is that. It's a kind of sloppiness. It's a kind of silliness. It's not really focused in the same way that meta is. So you'll see this with all of the Brahma Viharas. They all have a very near enemy. I mean, I won't kind of jump ahead and go into them, but they all have something that looks remarkably similar to the real thing. However, the real thing demands a lot more effort, a lot more attention, and a lot more care from the individual. I think for me too, I, I would think if I look at my own experience that sentimentality really falls within my emotional spectrum. So it's an emotion rather than a process, a verb of befriending, like I cry in movies, um, you know, when, you know, some love struck person is disappointed uh, and I realize it's completely unreal <laughs> and yet I still cry in movies I don't really understand it myself but it's kind of one of those it's kind of one of those sentimental surges but here is what for me would make the difference is that meta is all encompassing and it encompasses the truly challenging and the difficult. I would very unlikely feel sentimental towards a cancer if I had one. I would be very unlikely to feel sentimental about my most difficult neighbor. So with sentimentality, it, it doesn't seem to me that it very often touches the domains where our kind of strongest ill will or aversion reigns. So it tends to be more around heartache or, you know, heartbreak, sorrow, sadness. 
but not so much in my experience in the domains of aversion and ill will. You know, and certainly although we will go into this much more tomorrow, these are actually the most critical domains of metta. William Blake said that um, shame is the cloak of pride. Do you think he might also have said that sentimentality is the cloak of hardness of heart? So the, 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 so the um, was that William Blake said that shame is the cloak of pride. And would it be also true to say that sentimentality is the cloak of hardness of heart. I'm not so sure of that myself, because I, I think, I mean, sentimentality is an emotion. You know, it is our emotional spectrum. And I think it does arise in the face of the sorrowful, the sad. I think there is a genuine element of being touched by sadness and, and sorrow when sentimentality, when sentimentality arises because I'm, I'm not so totally convinced of that no I'm not no I'm not convinced by either I don't think it is hardness of heart I think sometimes it can touch on that but I don't think it necessarily is there is I mean I think this is why it's such a near enemy to genuine metta that that's there is something going on there in sentimentality it just doesn't get very deep it just doesn't go to the depths that Christine has mentioned of dealing with the difficult that we all have to encounter. Yeah. It's that sort of, ah, a lot of it. Yeah. It's that sort of feeling of softening, but not really softening towards that which is you know, the problematic person in your life, the difficult relation. Um, the illness, as Christina mentioned, I won't go through another catalogue, but you know, it doesn't really, really touch that domain at all. It stays with what is easier. Yeah. I would say yes, it does. In fact, that's usually often one of the other classifications of the near enemy of, of um, meta is attachment, and almost getting into the erotic as well, particularly if it's a member of the opposite sex or something like that. It can get very, into, very much into attachment areas. And so in the classic standard lists, you'll find attachment as being one of the actual near enemies as well. Um, so yes, I mean that's the basic answer. Is that that's absolutely spot on. The problem with, I mean, the problem with that is it doesn't really see. Uh, meta is a seeing of something very, very clearly, and it's a seeing that doesn't have to doesn't have to like what it sees. Whereas attachment, to be attached in the ways that's implied as the near enemy, means it wants it. It wants to be there. It wants to be with that emotion, feeling, person, whatever it might be. I think this is an important question. I mean, mm. the question is, you know, um, if you endeavor to befriend, say, someone or something you really dislike, isn't it encouraging a kind of duplicity or inauthenticity even? And I, I do feel that, that this is a very important area for our for us to explore and I think I did touch on it this afternoon about what we actually do give greater weight to our preferences our likes and our dislikes our prevailing mind state or the uh, 
more enduring value, I might say, might put it that way, of metta. Now, I do think it's an important question because I think there's a great deal of conditioning in our culture that says, you know, that our likes and dislikes are almost the highest authority. You know, that if I like something, I go for it. If I don't like it, it's perfectly legitimate to, for me to avoid, to shun, to dismiss, to disdain, to feel contempt for, to judge, to blame, that whole spectrum. So I, I do think that it is one of the reasons why meta practice is so radical, that it is not like and dislike-led, it is insight-led. It, and the part of insight that leads it is the actual knowing that, you know, aversion and ill will and its more moderate forms of disliking are, of course, the greatest toxic features in our culture, in our world, in our personal lives that actually require quite a radical act for their healing and to change the shape of their mind. And, you know, you have to... I think it's really good to reflect on how many times this actually actualizes in our life, that we don't give our likes and dislikes and the prevailing mind state of the moment the greatest authority. And I, you know, I talked about this in the last retreat we had here. Any of you who've been a parent, for example, and has a crying child in the night, you don't feel like getting up. You get up because there is something more enduring and caring in that. Um, you know, the many times when a friend might call us in distress and we're very busy and we don't feel like listening but we might take the moment to stop because we're actually guided by inwardly, I think, something deeper. So meta, in many ways, I think, like much of this path, is actually swimming against the tide of that whole spectrum of preferences, likes and dislikes. I don't think that makes it inauthentic. It doesn't mean that we have to like our dearest neighbor. But think about what happens when we follow pathways other than standing next to or standing near to. Essentially, you know, every time we follow the pathway of aversion and avoidance and dismissal, we're actually just deepening that habit. And it is that very habit, actually, that makes us very fearful in our lives. It's actually, in many ways, those habits of aversion, avoidance, and um, the fearfulness that they engender, I think, destroy or undermine this most, you know, very important quality in this path, which is confidence and fearlessness. And it's like a vote of no confidence in ourselves to flee. And it certainly doesn't condone the difficult person or the difficult situation. Metta, or that capacity to stand near to or stand next to, is no doubt not the end of the story. Um, But it may enable us to take the next steps of what is needed or what is possible to bring forward to actually deal with this very difficult person or difficult situation. Whereas avoidance and shunning and disdain actually doesn't allow us to take any more steps except really my own experience except to deepen that habit. I think why it is why metta is so far removed from sentimentality because in the most difficult situations in our life I think it requires phenomenal amount of courage and fearlessness to stand near to that or to stand next to that which we are so prone to abandon and to flee from. And this is not just an external mechanism, it's also an internal mechanism. You know, where our ex, you know, where we do exactly the same, same punitive acts towards our own being. What I don't like about myself. What I disdain about myself. And how I flee from that and actually do exactly the same thing of creating further distance and fear rather than relatedness.
Yeah, just a couple of things to add to that really, not much more. But the one thing always remember is that it's a training in metta. Um, it's called sikati in Pali, which means we train ourselves in metta. It doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. And I think we, we labor under an illusion often in the West that everything's got to feel authentic for us to be able to express something. And when we talk about expressing metta to somebody who's really difficult, somebody who we don't get on with, and that we're not talking about sort of gushing flows of love. We're talking about the ability perhaps just to listen a little bit more closely to what's being said, um, just to be around them for a few minutes more. We're talking about little elements of training uh, that um, really have nothing to do with an emotion. Uh, and this seems so odd to us, I think, sometimes in the West. But the Buddha didn't put the stress on the emotion. He put the stress on the behavior uh, of being kinder. Yeah. Um, we'll see this very clearly when we come to compassion. Compassion isn't an emotion. It's something we do. Yeah. It's something we engage in. You know, it's a doing rather than, than simply a, a state of mind. And the same with metta to a degree that we, we train ourselves in behaviorally, and I'm going to put this very strongly, standing close to somebody who we find difficult. That in itself is an act of friendliness, just as we stand close to that which is difficult in our own experience. And there is this big stress, actually, in the Buddha's teaching on behavioral aspects, so that it's not just about transforming the mind. Uh, you find this very much that, that, for example, if you want to understand some of the um, virtues that the Buddha talks about, which aren't necessarily that strongly developed in us. They're there, but they're not strong, that strongly developed in us. He stresses engaging in the behaviors that might give you a clue about what it's about. So if you want to know what it's like to be generous, engage in some generous acts. If you want to know what it's like to be friendly, engage in the training of trying to be friendly towards people, um, equally with compassion and so on and so forth within that. Um, because if we wait for the authentic, and I've said this so many times, uh, but I think it's important to say that um, if, you want to, if you want the sort of authentic emotion to arise without that feeling of duplicity or mendaciousness or whatever it might be, you could wait the whole of your life. <laughs> you know, I'm going to sit here and wait until I feel genuinely friendly before I express any friendliness towards that person. Where's it coming from? <laughs> Sometimes you just have to get out there and engage. And in many senses, and again, you'll probably hear this said by, certainly by myself, myself tomorrow again, in many senses, even when we're engaging in the practice of visualizing or, or just sensing uh, the categories of people, what we're engaging is a behavioral gesture with the mind. It doesn't mean the emotion's going to be there at that point. It's all part of training. Yeah. And, I mean, I, of course, I have something else to add. Of course. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think sometimes metta is as simple as an attitudinal commitment to non-abandonment, to not forsaking, to not fleeing. I think you know, many, many times in our life, that is actually really the beginning and, and at times the biggest gesture of metta um, because it is reversing the patterns of the tide or the tendencies that are most familiar and then actually feel both easier and safer. I think it's also important to remember that metta is not a standalone quality or cultivation. That metta is always engaging, of course, with the fullness of the past. So it's engaging with <clears throat> wise action, with wise speech, with wise effort. So there's, you know, it, metta, the willingness to stand beside is really the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. It's just like it's kind of like the beginning of all of the Brahma Viharas, but it's not the end of the story. And so the translation of what comes next 
built upon that willingness to stand near to or stand next to is, in a sense, a whole investigation in itself around that engagement and around what comes next. I think that's a very interesting point that Christina's just made there, because I think that's what we're engaging in as an experiment. Yeah, we, we know where the, the angers and the aversions and the irritations and that take us. Those are, those are our default patterns. Those are the ones we fall back into. Those are the habit patterns. Those are the grooves that the mind runs down most of the time. You know, to, to, to kind of reform neural pathways in the brain is actually going to take quite a bit of effort. Uh, and quite a bit of be- behavioural effort to engage in that, and so I think this is what we're enge- this is what we're actually doing. Um, we're engaging in behaviours which actually will change the habitual patterns that we form um, and create other patterns for ourselves at this time, and that's no easy task. I mean, just neurologically, it's an incredibly difficult task uh, to do that. But it's a task that's worth doing when, again, we can reflect. And again, this, I think, this connects with what Christina just said about the rest of the path. When we reflect the places that our destructive behaviors take us, our aggression, our irritations, our resentments towards others. And there's a lovely little passage that many of you know um, in the Dhammapada. It's quite early on in Dhammapada where the Buddha says, why hold resentment when we know of the thought of death? Yeah. Where is the point yeah, to it? So this is what we're doing. We're, we're reprogramming ourselves to a degree. But there's something that's very encouraging, I was told recently, is that you only have to do something new 500 times before it begins to, to forge a new neural pathway. That's really manageable. (laughs) (laughs) Like 500 moments of aversion and follow a different pathway and you're starting to forge a new neural pathway. I think that's very encouraging. Yes, and that's where meta is engaging. Uh, the question is sometimes you, for your own safety, you have to stay away from mm. abusive situations, abusive people. So meta is not a prescription for foolishness. Okay. Mm. So it is the way in which, you know what I said, the way that meta has to engage with wise action, wise choices, wise effort, um, which might include that. But you, one may be able to make those wise, very necessary wise choices and yet not create an enemy. Mm. Okay, so this, this is the big piece, you know. Can, because if we create an enemy, no matter how far away we go, we're going to take them with us. We're going to take them with us in our thoughts, our preoccupations, our fears and obsessions. So in many ways, you know, and if you think about, you know, in the early days, according to the stories, the reason why the Buddha put so much emphasis upon metta was actually as as a way of providing a refuge, as a way of providing a protection from fear and ill will. So sometimes that refuge, of course, is translated into a very tangible, physical sense of refuge. But it's also, I think, the greatest protection against objectifying anyone into an enemy because we are married to our enemies sometimes far more closely than the ones that we love. And that's the place where meta comes in. It wouldn't even send it. There's not even a question about sending meta so to that person. Sometimes it's about offering in those moments the meta inwardly that is needed, the willingness to stand close to mm. our own sense of fears and terrors. And 
you know, that, that will always be relational because we don't even need to take the extra step of including that other person in because that person's in the fears and in the terrors. So by, willingness, by our willingness to stand close to us, stand next to those, our own fears and ter terrors, in a way, we are reducing the size of our enemy. And they're there in any case. I think it, you know, we will go this, into this more tomorrow, but this exploring this whole concept of sending meta. Just one little thing I want to add on the back of that, really, as well. That metta as a, as a sati, as a form of mindfulness, there is you, we, there's a lot of subtleties and a lot of nuancing that doesn't come across normally about so-called mindfulness or sati. One is that it's also engaged in protection. There are forms of protective awareness. It's knowing, for example, that it's not the right time to go to a certain place in your experience, not to go back to a certain person um, because you know where it can lead. And again, this is about the learning that I mentioned earlier on. You learn from your experience. It's, not, it's a bit like knowing when not to stick your tongue in a cavity because you know it's painful. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what we can do. We can keep on probing that thing. Uh, and this is not protecting ourselves. It actually is not showing, and I think this is implicit in what Christine is saying, and, and slightly explicit as well, which is not actually showing meta towards ourselves. Yeah. You know, that meta, uh, meta isn't just outward, it's inward as well. And so I think there's two things involved in that. There is that development of that sense of kindness and friendliness towards yourself and also the sense of protection that's required um, in knowing not to go into certain situations. And, and the point that you raised, you know, I think is, is really important because I think it really points to where people feel that they fail at meta. You know, because they have a really difficult person in their life and they have a really difficult situation, and they somehow have this idea that metta means I can send warmth or send friendliness. But actually, that's not what metta means in that moment. Mm. You know, we always need to keep weaving metta into, into sati. And part of sati is not only protection, part of sati is discernment. You know, and one of the, say, one of the metaphors of that that is used in sometimes at the, in the traditional teachings is the image of the gatekeeper of a city who kind of stands at the gates and really knows who to welcome in and actually who to not because they're not going to be uh, of good motive, of good intention. So... The, the discernment <clears throat> quality of metta is bigger than that, too. It's really rooted as an insight practice. It's genuinely rooted in understanding what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering, and actually acting on that discernment. So that is not about sort of going out and erasing my worst enemy or the most abusive person I've ever come across. But it's actually knowing that, you know, this is not just about an internal world. It's about an external world, too. Objective realities live in people's lives that they're asked to respond to time and time again. So there's always this quality, you know, if this, uh, this discernment <clears throat> that actually, if I know what leads to suffering, I commit myself to bringing it to an end. That may mean a physical departure but not a fearful departure. And it's the fearful departure often that we have to learn to bring, uh, to stand next to in ourselves. Otherwise, there's no freedom in it. I think one other thing just to remember, just to point out, is that the development of meta or any of these qualities isn't the annulment of difficulty. It is not the erasing of difficulty. It's a radical reorientation of our ways of living with difficulty. 
Yeah. Instead of going into the usual strategies of trying to block out or getting angry or whatever we might do, we learn to develop an awareness which allows us to cope with it through friendliness. Yeah. But it's not annulling it. Yeah. It's not erasing it at all. Yeah. So it's a way of reorienting our approach to the difficult. We're probably doing all of our meta teaching of tomorrow tonight. Are we? Oh, okay. No, maybe not. <laughs> I, I have a question about yesterday. Um, you mentioned about approaching the hindrances, and you were also talking about how you stand next to or lean into. And I, uh, I've often, I don't know, in my experience, it's felt like almost the same quality as moving away from. Do you know what I mean? No. Um, it's sort of, uh, sort of like when you have uh, a dislike of something, how you move away from it, and or you, I don't know, anything like that, moving towards some. It, it's well moving away from it often has this real neurotic quality to it, and moving towards sometimes does as well because and so I I guess I'm kind of confused because I've often found that if I have a dislike that if I just kind of stay with the experience of it that it um, somehow it just opens up. I don't think you're confused at all. So, so the question is, that, you know, these extremes of moving away from something or moving towards from something, both which can have a neurotic quality, and indeed they can, because they can both have some quite unconscious agendas. You know, I'm moving towards something because I want it to go away. I'm moving away from something because I feel I can't bear it. Now, the quality of sati, of mindfulness and metta, is not really moving towards, it's turning towards. It's turning towards, it's turning the attention towards. Now, that can have a lot of different dimensions. For, you know, if I go into, say, something quite... Um, tangibly physical, you know, I have a pain in my meditation, you know, take that very gross example. Um, you know, my first default mechanism is probably to flee in some way. And I will probably use some of the hindrance factors to do that, to enable that. I might just zone out. That's an amazing thing, that we can just zone out in the midst of pain, you know, dissociate completely. I could do all the other hindrance mechanisms of aversion, wanting a different kind of experience, doubt, incapacity. All of this is kind of, I mean, neurosis is not the right word, but all of these are very familiar pathways that can actually turn into neurotic, neurotic pathways if they're really um, repeated. Um, I can also have different agendas. It says, you know, I really have to bear this. I really have to go into this. You know, I really have to get to the bottom of this. And I practiced in lots of those pathways in Asia, you know, where it was really, there were so many agendas about um, purifying in a very distorted way and overcoming and transcending and, you know, getting to grips with something. It was, it was quite neurotic, really. Um, um, didn't, you know, a lot of us kind of learn from our mistakes sort of thing. Whereas mindfulness doesn't have agendas. Mindfulness is an open space. Sati is an open space, I would say. I would say metta is an open space. It's turning towards, certainly we are turning our attention towards what is. Not what should be, not our ideas about <coughs> what we want to happen. It's a simple turning towards what is and learning to stand next to that with an attitude of befriending. Standing next to it is an attitude of befriending. And it's an open space because it's free from agendas. We don't know what will unfold when that happens. Something might persist, something might open up, but what we actually have confidence in 
is actually the, the reality that we are staying as closely connected and as closely aligned as we possibly can with the core, the simple, not always simple, but the simple actuality of what is going on right now. Yeah? No, really, I mean, the only thing I have to add to that, and it's not really saying anything different, is that it's open acknowledgement. It's a real, real acknowledgement of what is there. It's, it's, as Christina says, it's agendaless. It doesn't have an agenda. It just has the ability to, to turn towards, to see, to acknowledge, to befriend. Um, and actually, in that acknowledgement, we will see what often happens with things that arise in our experience and difficulties. And it's a very simple thing, normally. If we just acknowledge, it arises and passes away. Yeah. It doesn't always hang around that long. Um, it's usually, you know, the neurosis in the sense that you were indicating, the running away from repression. Well, that's going to come up at another point. Going and moving in towards neurotically, that's going to make it stay in place. You know, so actually this is an open acknowledgement that allows it the free space to do what actually things do, which is arise and pass away. Okay, so the question, if I, can, if I can sum it up, is that I mean, the important recognition of the way that the five hindrances, you remember them? No, craving, aversion, sloth, torpor, restlessness, worry, and doubt about how these are the five manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. So if I can sum up the question, tell me if I'm wrong, that metta as an antidote to these or moving out of the field of those into something like metta feels like much less self in it. That there is, there is a lot of selfing in the hindrances. And there's a lot of selfing, obviously, in greed, hatred, and delusion. So is that, am I with you so far? creates an open space in which there's much less selfing. Okay. And glimpses of that on the cushion, but how that seems to disappear so, quick, so quickly in human relationship. And um, the question was, is there a possibility of being free of the hindrance factors and all of the selfing that goes with them in the realm of human relationship, which is such a trigger? <laughs> hmm? we can do pretty good with you know construction sounds or the tickle in my knee the hum of the heating system but give me a person <laughs> <laughs> and watch how those hindrances fly <laughs> well, it's true it's the most complex area of our lives 
the most challenging because it is the place where we're the most vulnerable. And the person is usually also doing the self thing. Of course, other people are doing whatever they're going to do. So most conflicts are really a, you know, a little bit of a tension between two selfing processes which are not in accord, <laughs> which happen to be doing different things at the same, in the same moment. And usually engaged in two separate monologues. And usually engaged in two separate <laughs> monologues, yeah. um, holding two sets of views. I mean, it's very important to recognize and just to deeply acknowledge that human relationship is the most difficult place to practice. Our agendas are bigger, our narratives are bigger, and therefore, too, is our whole process of selfing much more magnified, as is others. That does not mean it's exempt from the path. You know, and if we practice anywhere, it's probably most significant in this realm of human relationship and most complex. We cannot change the course of another person's mind or heart. We will get to that when we talk about equanimity. We cannot change the course or the ways of another person's mind or heart. The only place where we can evoke any changes is within our own. And actually, that is what we take responsibility for in this path. The Buddha certainly did present the possibility, and actually I have great confidence in this, of the uprooting of the hindrance factors and their underlying cores of greed, hatred, and delusion. If this was not possible, this path wouldn't be. And actually, you know, the, the Buddha once had this wonderful statement. He says, it, he says, if I did not believe, if I did not have confidence that this was not possible for you, I would not ask it for you, of you. But because I have confidence that this is indeed possible for you, I ask it of you. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm quite anxious <clears throat> about not doing is demonizing the selfing process. Because <laughs> we can so easily demonize it um, in the sense of now we can gain aversion towards the self. I mean, the self is problematic enough as it is without actually having an aversion. We have an aversion to ourselves and then we have an aversion to the aversion towards ourselves. <laughs> so this is like aversion with compound interest. <laughs> you know, and this is something we simply don't need. Um, so it's not a question of wanting to obliterate or eradicate or demonize the self at all. It's to clearly get an understanding of what this process is. And actually, if we a little bit more charitable towards ourselves, we can see that in a lot of a range of our experience, there isn't a strong selfing process going on. Yeah. And I think we forget that. A lot of time when we're sort of kind of bumbling around doing our own stuff, you know, just engaged perhaps in our activities, in our work, in our pleasures and things like that, there's not necessarily a strong selfing process there. It's usually arising, as I suggested earlier on, in, in elements of craving, when craving arises. Yeah. It, comes in, it literally comes into being as a much more forceful, strong element in our experience, because that is the want and don't want. What I want and what I don't want. And notice how that I gets pushed to the forefront then. That's the source of conflict. And actually, when you think about a lot of human conflict, I wouldn't say all, but a lot of human conflict is the clash of wants and not wants. Yeah. That's when those self is very, very evident. Now, the Buddha is very clear about this. It's not about eradicating the self. It's actually, in a sense, stop it to cease, for it to cease to be such a dominant element of our experience. 
And the way that it ceases, the way that ceases to be such a dominant element of our experience is by developing far more wholesome ways of being, which actually fundamentally decrease that process. Yeah. Don't eradicate it. It's actually quite useful to have a self, actually, in many ways. Um, you know, those without selves are pretty amorphous. Actually, it's quite a frightening position. Um, those without selves are people often suffering from dementia and Alzheimer's. You know, terrifying experience. You know? um, that is not what the Buddha recommended. What he recommended was actually understanding the place that this, this fundamental process um, had in our experience, but not letting it predominate. Yeah. Not, in a sense, reifying it. Not grasping onto it. Reification is one, on the one hand, what we're mostly engaged in. On the other hand, it can be the sense of demonizing, obliterating, wanting to get rid of. Both give rise to aberrant behaviors. Yeah. So it's like how to be a self without being self with a big S. It really is. So it's diminishing the dominance of that process but it's not going to be eradicated. So it's like, how do we hold that notion of self? Yeah. How do we hold it? We can hold it destructively, or we can hold it as the wholesome background to our experience. Yeah. And it, it's just good to notice, you know, that the third ennobling truth is not the end of self. The third ennobling truth is the end of suffering. The ceasing to leak. And what we're more concerned with here is, is bringing to an end distorted views of self. Not only about ourselves, but the distorted views of self that we very generously impose upon many beings. It is very important <coughs> to root this in your own experience because... If, if we look at our own experience, it becomes pretty evident that the view of self feels most fixed and most enduring in the, when held in the grip of unskillful and unwholesome emotions and views and tendencies. You notice that? That when there is you know, a lot of aversion present, a lot of greed present, a lot of fear present, Notice how the sense of me becomes so solidified, so strong. The narrative is very big. The story grows and grows. Have you noticed in the midst of more wholesome and skillful qualities, which are part of all of our days, when there's a greater sense of calmness or empathy, genuine sense of kindness or ease or spaciousness, you notice how the voice, the view of selfing, the volume gets turned right down? It's, you know, we don't sit there and say, you know, you know, I wonder why I have so much empathy today. You know, it's not a good idea. And, you know, probably a better idea to feel something different, you know, and I'm not an empathic person, you know. The, the whole narrative just calms right down. It's really good to, to actually trace that in our experience. So actually what, what a lot of the path is doing, including the cultivation of, of the Brahmaharas, of course, is cultivating those qualities of heart which are genuinely healing, liberating, um, connecting, um, establishing, cultivating those wholesome because then, you know, we don't actually have to do anything with view of self in the midst of that. And by cultivating the wholesome and the skillful, the unskillful has more of a, is in decline, we might say. And, you know, it's very important in, in this kind of understanding to, to not make a project not only of eradicating self, but of eradicating the unwholesome or the unskillful. I think this is a very, it, it places us in a place of contention, 
of agendas, of projects, and I fear that the very view of self, which is trying to eradicate the unskillful, is actually held in the grip of the unskillful. It's actually as John was saying, you know, I don't like this, I'm aversive to it, so I am, through the mechanisms or the lens of that aversion, trying to eradicate what I feel I can't bear or what is unacceptable. So the, the actual way to the balancing in this path is pretty firmly focused in exactly what we've said today around bhavana. That is the commitment of the path. Not to engage in battle with the unskillful or unhelpful, but actually to quite consciously engage in the fostering and the cultivating and the nurturing of that which is healing and liberating, that which is restoring, renewing, and isn't it curious how in the light of that the unskillful finds a natural decline. So it's a kind of a reorientation really. I think the whole of this path, the whole of this practice is a, is a kind of a reorientation to what we are actually committing to moment to moment. And clearly the commitment that's being asked for, I would say in the whole of the path and very obviously in the, in the realm of the Brahma Viharas, it is an attitudinal commitment to cultivating and nurturing and bringing into being that which frees, that which liberates, and not an over-preoccupation with how I get rid of what I don't want. Because there we are in the realm right away, again, of the hindrance factors and their roots. I think this is very important because I think it's moving away from images, I don't know, of mental spring cleaning, of trying to get rid of the cobwebs and the dirt and all the stuff that we don't want into an image which is much more horticultural, which actually fits back in much in, more in line with the kind of metaphors which the Buddha uses, which are primarily agrarian metaphors of growing things. Uh, and the emphasis is on growing wholesome, you know, wholesome qualities in our experience. And this is, I think, a big step forward if we move into that. We'd, as Christine said, we don't have to do battle with the unwholesome qualities in our minds. We don't have to fight them. We don't have to wrestle with them. What we have to do is direct our minds into developing the wholesome, into developing the skillful. And a bit like a garden, where you cultivate a garden with lots of beautiful plants, actually the weeds don't get a chance to get through. Yeah, they don't have a chance to grow there any longer. You give them no ground to grow on. Um, because the mind is taken up with what is wholesome. Um, the, the actually unwholesome elements have no place to take root whatsoever. So it's not a matter of, and I think we've said this many, many times, and both of us agree on this, we don't let go of anything, actually. We don't have to let go of stuff. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear that phrase, let go, it's a bit like somebody telling me to relax. <laughs> you know, it almost has the opposite effect. Um, the kind of instruction, to just let go. <laughs> Holding on as tightly as possible. This is much more the, I think, the injunction to move into cultivate, develop. And it comes back actually to one of the earlier questions about, you know, the... the you know, the behavioral element here. Develop it, cultivate it, make it part of your life, and it will become your life. You know, it becomes a way of seeing things uh, when we start to develop these wholesome qualities. And actually, on Buddhist psychology, in Buddhist psychology, these things are present anyway in our experience. They're either nascent or they're not fully developed. What we're engaging in this, in this bhavana, and this process of cultivation, this process of development, is we're bringing them into full bloom. That's what we're doing. Um, because everybody, for example, shows friendliness, usually to a small number of people. Yeah. Everybody shows a degree of kindness, usually to a small number of people. 
generosity, and so on and so forth. All of these qualities are present in our minds, and they're often there. The whole emphasis is on development, making them into something far more boundless. It doesn't mean that we ignore the weeds. No. It doesn't mean that we sort of pretend that the weeds aren't there, which is why, you know, the path is so much rooted in investigation and actually the knowing of what's actually going on here. But then we come back to what is the best way of actually uprooting the weeds? You know, DDT has been proved not to be the best way. In it. It's actually, we learn other mechanisms, other ways of the weeds being uprooted without centralizing me so much as it being my job, you know, the perpetual gardener. But it's not about ignoring the weeds because the weeds are there too. If there weren't for the weeds, we wouldn't have this path. But it's, it's changing the orientation around actually how we approach the weeds. Not with a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> Including the weed of self-view. Just one more. We had 12 minutes past. Time for one more as long as we are very restrained. <laughs> are you going to be very restrained? <laughs> Okay, so the question is, does um, hearing that metta does not always have a positive or pleasant feeling tone, that in turning towards something, the whole gamut of emotions might arise in the headlight of that, um, so that metta may not, what was the last thing you said, metta? May not always be fun. Metta may not always be fun. <laughs> I think there's two different things here, and I think mm. it's, it's good to discern them. I mean, certainly in, in Buddhist psychology, metta would always be a wholesome factor. Huh? What happens in the wake of metta? can be a whole range of different feelings. Some people find a lot of aversion arises, say, when they undertake formal metta practice. When we turn towards something we've been more accustomed to abandoning, it may open a whole doorway of, a, of an emotional spectrum. You know, It may give the room for fears to arise, for anxieties, for um, ill will to arise. Now, what arises is not exactly the same as the act of turning towards. Okay, so th those are two actually, I would say, distinct things. And, you know, people are sometimes surprised, for example, in doing formal meta practice because they thought it was going to be fun, um, <laughs> only to find, guess what? Here, you know, the hindrances kick in. Here I'm spacing out, you know. Why am I feeling aversive? I'm supposed to be doing metta. You know, why is this happening? But it's not because of the metta. It is because the intention to stand near to something rather than engage in our usual mechanisms of reaction <coughs> is actually opening the door to that emotional spectrum. It's two, two different things here. The metta, I would say, is actually always a wholesome quality. Yeah, the matter is always a wholesome quality. It doesn't necessarily always have... Um, I mean, the, the Vedana is completely, in a sense, just what arises. 
It's not personal at all. And the trouble is we take Vedana terribly personally. <laughs> if something strikes us in our experience as being pleasant or unpleasant, particularly. And really, there isn't such a thing as a neutral. It's usually just the absence of the pleasant or the unpleasant. Yeah. So um, I think that we ought to get that very clear, that there's nothing personal in that. And so actually, when we turn towards something with a negative Vedana, it doesn't all, with, with metta, it's not going to change the Vedana of it. Yeah? It's not going to change the Vedana tone, because that's just the hedonic tone that arises with, with our experience. It's like all of our experience is toned in this way. Um, but when we turn towards it with metta, we acknowledge it. Yeah, it goes back to one of the earlier questions. We acknowledge it, we allow it in, we accept it um, as it is with its negative Vedana tone. So it's not always fun, no. Um, but it's a far more wholesome, far more positive way of being with difficult Vedana, difficult experience. Okay, so I think we're going to end there this evening. Thank you for your Thank very you. yeah. thoughtful questions and your listening. So I think it's really quite important to complete days like this, you know, where there's a lot of input for us, output. Um, <laughs> to end the day with some quietude and some coming back into, a, again, this dimension of our Path, which is very experiential. So we will have a walking period now. Probably your body is ready for that. Um, and then we'll uh, come back at quarter to nine, I think, for really quite a short sitting to end the day. So thank you. Yeah. And please feel free to go ahead because we're going to rearrange our furniture. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>